Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. There is a, an outline handout on the back table, if that will be helpful for you. <clears throat> it will be in verses 12 through 36 today of Genesis 37. Last time we were in Genesis, we just barely were introduced to the story uh, which Genesis calls the generations of Jacob, a story which uh, mostly is about Joseph. Jacob, renamed Israel, had a divided and volatile family, for sure. His sons were worse than their father in their sins. But one son stood out from the others. Joseph was more righteous than his brothers. Joseph was his father's chosen and beloved one, though he was the son of Jacob's old age, actually because he was the son of Jacob's old age, and though he was the little brother to all but his little brother Benjamin. He was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, actually the only woman Jacob had initially intended to marry, Rachel. Rachel was dead. Now Joseph and his very little brother Benjamin were the only reminders, the only uh, things left, as it were, from Rachel. The other brothers were sons of Leah, the less favored one, or of the two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph was his father's chosen and beloved one. Indicated by that coat, either of many colors or perhaps just meaning of long sleeves and reaching to his ankles, a long, flowing, almost regal robe. Jacob gave this, this robe, this tunic, to his son Joseph. And Joseph was revealed by prophetic dreams to be God's chosen one before whom even his own family must one day bow. And his brothers were filled with jealous hatred. So as we get into the storyline of this text, we see Joseph sent on a mission to his brothers by his father. Let's look at Joseph's mission to his brothers as we see, sadly, the outworking of his brother's jealous hatred. Verses 12 through 17, let's read those together. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. It's ironic that the same word is used here. See if it is well with your brothers. See about their welfare, literally their peace. Same word used very uh, recently when it said Joseph's brothers could not speak peacefully to him. But, it says, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. In verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. It's interesting that we hear that Jacob's sons were pasturing the flocks near Shechem. 
where not too long ago, maybe even some guess about three years before this, their sister Dinah had been raped, and then as a re- response, they had murdered the men of Shechem, specifically Simeon and Levi had done that. Perhaps the surrounding Canaanites had uh, somewhat forgotten about that, or at least not been uh, quite as worked up about it at this point. Maybe they learned about the rape that caused everything that happened. Well, it's interesting. They're near Shechem, pasturing the flocks. Remember, as uh, as John Curran would remind us, as semi-nomads, Jacob and his family would continually move their flocks from one area to another. They did that in order to provide grazing land and water for the animals. So if, if we uh, work this out geographically, it says that Jacob and Joseph were down in the valley of Hebron, which later would be the, the area of Judah, southern Canaan. Shechem is in the central hill country and uh, has rich soil, abundant water supplies. But from Hebron to Shechem is about 50 miles, five zero, fifty 50 miles. That's a long way to send, at least recently he was called a 17-year-old, send 17-year-old Joseph on his own as an emissary to his brothers. That's a long way. But Jacob trusted Joseph, apparently. And Joseph was eager to do it. Go out on his own on this mission. Far from home. Well, when he got to Shechem, Joseph, of course, was told his brothers weren't there. They'd been overheard saying they were going to move the flocks to Dothan, which was yet farther to the north. About 13 and a half miles directly north of Shechem. Dothan had extensive pasture lands in a broad valley, and it was on one of the most important highways in the ancient world, the pass near there. That'll be important later when some traders go that direction. But it seems like Jacob and Joseph are naive and ignorant of the brothers' deep hatred and jealousy. They walk right into this, never dreaming that Joseph will never return to his home. Never. From this mission. Well, we see the brothers plot then to murder Joseph as he approaches. Verses 18 through 24, their plot to murder their own brother. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Some translate that, this Lord of dreams. (laughs) Uh, That is the expression, but it might also just be a Hebrew way of of naming someone, um, this Lord of this or that. But there's certainly scorn in what they say. Here comes this dreamer. Verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Remember, his dreams that indicating that he would once that he would one day be their lord, their sovereign. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The 
pit was empty. There was no water in it. It mentions um, a pit here. At first the plan was to murder Joseph themselves and then throw his corpse into a pit. One of these pits, they say. Later, Reuben says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to, you don't have to do the dirty work. Just throw him in the pit first. Nature will take its course. Um, there would have been pits used in the ancient world for a lot of things. Uh, they could serve as grain storage receptacles. They could be cisterns. Many people think this was a cistern since it mentions there was no water in it. Um, they could be latrines. They could be refuse dumps. They could be robber pits. Um, but uh, one commentator says these pits were often fairly large, reaching a width of 10 feet and a depth of 16 feet. Seems to be the typical pit, I guess, that archaeologists find. At any rate... Reuben said, just throw him into this pit in the wilderness, meaning it's far away from this, from town. No one's going to hear him there. He'll die anyway without us actually taking his life. Reuben's the firstborn, so he has the status to make demands of his brothers. Now, it's true that uh, he had earlier soiled his status by sleeping with his father's concubine, the mother of two of his half-brothers, but he nevertheless acts as the one in charge here. And Moses, as he writes this, reveals that Reuben, for all his grievous faults, Reuben did not want to murder Joseph, actually. That's especially remarkable since his father was treating Joseph like the firstborn, virtually Reuben's replacement. <laughs> but Reuben was alone in his restraint, and he didn't have the courage to openly object to Joseph's death. He would only dare to suggest a less direct means of murder, acting like he still wanted Joseph dead when he didn't. So he was not murderous in his heart exactly, perhaps, but still a weasel wouldn't simply stand up to his brothers for what was right. He thought he could manipulate the situation so that he wouldn't actually be guilty of murder. Maybe it teaches Joseph a lesson too, I suppose. <laughs> Look, we don't like you. <laughs> Even if he got out of the pit. But think of what Reuben's proposal meant if everyone had stuck with that plan. It wouldn't be sparing Joseph's life. It would just be protracting the agony of death. Probably Joseph would die of thirst and exposure in there. And maybe Reuben is also hoping to regain his father's favor after what he had done to his father, sleeping with his dad's concubine. If, if he restored Joseph to him, maybe Reuben thought, that'll get me back in dad's good graces. And there also may have been a rift here. Earlier in chapter 37, it said it was there was particularly bad blood between Joseph and the sons of Bilhah. Well, it was Bilhah with whom Reuben had slept, and maybe... He and those two guys weren't on the best of terms. At any rate, uh, for whatever the reasons, and there could have been a number of reasons like this, Reuben goes against the plan to outright murder Joseph. 
He says, just throw him in the pit. So that's what they did. And they were careful to strip Joseph of that tunic, that coat they hated so much. The symbol of his being the chosen one, dad's son he really loves. So there was this plot to murder Joseph. But then something unexpected happens and it gives... It gives Judah a new idea. So we see the brothers' new plan then to sell Joseph, which is 25 to 28. It says, Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Later they're called Midianites or Medanites. <clears throat> Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So they were carrying uh, precious commodities to Egypt. They were in this trade. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it? What do we get out of it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We'll have to go to great lengths to cover it up anyway. Verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. It's just rehearsing um, that this caravan is coming. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Well, let's back up a bit to the beginning of this section. Verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. What do you do after throwing away your brother like garbage so he'll die of thirst and exposure? Apparently, you take a lunch break. This is written in such a way that you feel how crass and callous and hard-hearted these men are. Oh, time for lunch. That's done. The kid you can't stand is out of the way. And his pitiful cries for mercy are music to your ears. Life is good again. Let's eat. But later these men will realize that they had horribly wounded their own consciences. This deed would haunt them for decades. They kept dreading that divine vengeance was hanging over them, ready to destroy them ever after this. Ever after this. For decades. Genesis 42.21, later when they are in a tight spot, and they still don't understand that Joseph has been made Lord of Egypt. <laughs> but it says, Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is, that is why this distress has come upon us. Anything, any threat arriving in their lives, it makes them remember, this, uh-oh, this is, this is God's vengeance on us. Joseph begged us and we didn't listen. You know, your bold sin might feel really good right now. Your anger, your hatred, maybe your immorality, your cruelty, maybe your bold-faced lies, maybe your unjust gain, something like that might give you satisfaction today. Because you scratched that wretched itch. You might even feel like throwing a party. 
You might even sleep better tonight in smug self-confidence. But tomorrow or the next day, that sin will eat you alive. Isaiah 57, 19-21. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is a great example of that. Now, the good news, of course, in the case of these men is that God would make them objects of his grace. He would make them changed men in the end. But right now, they are neck deep in wickedness. And though they feel good about it at the moment, it's going to haunt them. Now, it's also interesting that the people to whom Judah and his brothers sell Joseph are called Ishmaelites or Midianites. So it seems to be a general designation that overlaps in Scripture. You look at Judges chapter 8, the two terms are used of the same group. People coming from Ishmael and uh, Midian and other descendants of Abraham who are outside Abraham's covenant. So it's interesting, those outside the covenant, though they had a connection to the family way back, a few generations, they're the ones who actually take Joseph down to Egypt as a slave. Think about what Judah says to his brothers, verses 26 through 27. What he says to his brothers and their agreement, that, that hints that their consciences are already ill at ease. They're still determined to be rid of Joseph, but they grasp at a chance to avoid actually killing their own flesh and blood. They've sat down to eat. Maybe already their conscience is starting to terrify them. Ooh, this is heavy. We actually let him die. Oh, great. There's a caravan. Let's sell him. They'll just sell him off to an unknown fate in a far off pagan land. Because human trafficking is better than murder, right? Right? Actually, no. According to the very law of Moses, given from God, in Genesis 9, God had said to mankind, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But then the same penalty is expected to be carried out on human traffickers, those who enslave people, kidnap them, and sell them. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Likewise, Deuteronomy 24.7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This action of selling Joseph as a slave in no way lessened the guilt of the brothers before God. And the amount paid by the Ishmaelites for Joseph seems to have been the usual price, at least that Scripture mentions, for a male between 5 and 20 years old. And it's the value of a slave. 20 shekels is the value of a slave in in uh, a law code from around that time, the Code of Hammurabi. 
They're selling him off as if he weren't their brother, as if he were just a slave, a commodity to be bought and sold. And they can make a buck off of him and be rid of him. Then we get to verses 29 through 36. 29 through 36, the brothers' conspiracy to imply Joseph's death. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, the common sign of great mourning and anguish, and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? What am I supposed to do now? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe. Notice they won't even call him their brother. Your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn in pieces, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth in his loins, often made out of something rough like goat hair. Sackcloth was supposed to be uncomfortable, a sign of mourning. And he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to the grave, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Interesting, right away, the brothers think they're rid of Joseph, and immediately what happens? Joseph gets sold to a member of Pharaoh's court. Not just any Egyptian. The aristocracy. He goes straight to the household of an aristocrat in Egypt, portending things to come. Reuben goes back to the pit, and his weaselly plan doesn't work. Joseph's gone. What happened? Did they take him out and kill him while I was gone? Realize they're pastoring flocks. It's normal for people to come and go. Reuben probably went to check on something in another pasture. He comes back. Joseph's gone. He must be dead. Then he finds out he got sold. So what are they going to do about this? Reuben says, where can I go? Implying, I can't go home to face dad without Joseph. And by the, the wording here, it says they took, they took Joseph's coat, his tunic, his robe. They dipped it in goat's blood so that it would look like Joseph was met a bloody end. And the wording here, um, when they when they send this coat to their dad, it seems like they don't even bring it to him themselves exactly. Maybe they send a servant with it. It says they sent the robe of many colors and brought it, or you could translate that, had it brought to their father. They're distancing themselves from the whole thing. We found this coat. Go go show it to dad. Some have remarked it's ironic that Jacob, their dad, had deceived his father by using a goat and a garment <laughs> to steal the blessing from Esau. Who knows if his sons even had that in mind at the time. 
But what heartless disregard for their father, as Meredith Klein says, mocking his hope to give Joseph the firstborn benefits. So they're, they're mocking their father by presenting the tunic, the sign of Jacob's purpose, as evidence of Joseph's death. This is the final touch of spite toward their father and toward Joseph. They use that coat they hated so much to fake Joseph's death. And then they follow through with this whole charade of mourning and helping their dad mourn. They knew Joseph wasn't dead. And their dad not only did the the traditional many days of mourning, he just wouldn't stop with the process. Their dad was now in a perpetual state of grief. And his sons and his daughters, probably indicating also his daughters-in-law, they tried to comfort him, but he refused it. And not one of the brothers broke ranks and told the truth. Not one. They were in this together. All through this sordid tale, these brothers are a band of evildoers, seeking refuge in their solidarity, their common sentiments, their ambitions. Together, we've agreed. Don't get sucked into such a mob mentality. Don't join such an arrogant club. A conspiracy of evil. People do it all the time. Proverbs 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw on your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Well, that's the story. Very sad story but very poignant, isn't it, of the human condition. Some of you may have experienced such terrible things in your family. I don't know. Or with people you thought should have been your companions, your friends. People betray each other. People let hatred and jealousy transform them into sometimes murderous wretches. It can happen. But what's the relevance of this text for us today? Beyond just an awful story that will get, that will get resolved later in a good ending. <laughs> well, first of all, let's talk about the nature of our sin that we see here. The nature of our sin. When we read of Jacob's brothers, we... We, ha- we need to resist the urge to distance their evil character from our own character. We need to resist that urge to simply view these as the really bad guys, the antagonists in the story that we do not identify with at all. Apart from the redemptive grace of God, we are all wretched evildoers. Our hearts and hands are full of deep-seated malice and envy. 
and callous greed and deceit too. We read in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul saying, who the law of God was made to restrain. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. That's an interesting term that could be referring to kidnappers or enslavers, those who kidnap and then sell these people. So enslavers is a good translation. For liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's who the law of God is for. So does that mean we're clear? We're free? The law of God isn't for us? It's just for those really bad people? No. Scripture speaks about how all people fit into that category as they're born into this world. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in this epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul unravels the results of suppressing the truth that people already know about God. They see what God has made, his creation. They have consciences given to them by God, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And at the end of listing what that results in, Paul writes, since they did not fit to, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But again, that's not simply a portrait of those pagan brutes out there somewhere far, far away from us. Far removed from our background. No. Even we who have been transformed by God's grace, we were all just as perverse in our hearts once. Titus 3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. And doesn't this sound like Joseph's brothers? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Scripture says that was us. And that is you if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've papered it over with some pretty wallpaper. It's still there. Maybe you've got really re- gotten really refined about expressing it. Or getting your way in a way that's not so obvious. It's still there. If you don't have Jesus Christ. Romans 3.10 As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or cobras is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you see Reuben? Reuben in his cowardly half measures of morality, thinking himself better than the rest. You're not just seeing Reuben. You're looking in the mirror. In your natural state. Do you see bloodthirsty Simeon and Levi? Always so assured that they had good reason to vent their rage on others. They had already murdered a whole town of men. Now they're going to murder their brother. Look at Judah. He's so smooth and refined. He's too civilized to actually do the deed he wanted to do. Judah, the one who devised a scheme to get rid of a brother more righteous than he, while he puts a band-aid on his conscience and even makes a buck. You're looking in the mirror. That's what we do. One way or the other. What will you do about it? Do you see these ten brothers? They're so divided and quarrelsome, but now they're united by their common envy and malice. Sometimes nothing unites people like a common enemy. And none of them willing to cross the others in their pact of cruel deceit. That's just the human depravity we all share. And we all think we're not that bad because we're all in this mess together. But it really is a mess. And we really are unspeakably bad in our natural state. Just because it's all of us doesn't mean it's no longer bad. It's who we are. Romans 2, 1-3 Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Face up to your guilt. And face up to God's righteous judgment that hangs over you. Don't hide from those realities. You can't get away from it anyway. Face them. And then face the only one who can save you from them. Even here in Genesis... God, the God of Israel, is setting down patterns, patterns of how he will redeem sinners like these worthless brothers. And Joseph is a pattern. He's a dim shadow of a coming figure. I talked about this last week, but I need to talk about it again this week from a little different angle. What happened to Joseph points us to what later happened to the promised Savior, the greater offspring of Israel, the beloved son of God. That leads me to talk not just about the nature of our sin, but the passion, the suffering of our Savior. There's so many parallels here. The beloved son sent to Israel's murderous shepherds. Jesus told this parable directed specifically at those who were to be Shepherds of Israel, of God's people. Luke 20, verse 9. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. 
A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Later it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Matthew 26, verse 3, tells us that the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There's also the parallel of the betrayal for a price. When one of the twelve, one of the twelve apostles of Jesus, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. There's also the perverse self-righteousness of envious men. They do things to make themselves still feel like good guys when they're just driven by envy and hate. Remember Matthew 27, verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. Oh, now they're concerned about what's lawful. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. There's also that scene where these Jewish leaders, these shepherds of Israel, bring Jesus to the Roman governor. And they're very careful to do everything the right way. John 18, 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And later on, when Pilate says, why did you bring this man to me? They say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He had to die on a Roman cross. But this was brought about because the Jews were too fastidious to do something else.
Later, they would stone Stephen themselves. Jesus, they were too righteous for that. Fourth, there's the parallel of the disowning and abandonment to the Gentiles, people outside God's covenant. Israel's sons disowned Joseph. They sold him to those outside God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They let the Midianites and then the Egyptians do their dirty work. Similarly, Jesus was disowned. He was handed over by his own people to the pagan Romans to do the dirty work. Peter says in Acts 3, verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The physical deed may have been the Romans, but the greater guilt belonged to the Jews and the Jewish leaders. And the Holy Spirit filled Stephen later to draw the parallel to Joseph, and other rejected saviors of Israel. As Stephen stands on trial for his life before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He is rehearsing Israel's history. And he brings out all the times they've rejected their savior sent by God. And he mentions Joseph. Acts 7 verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. That God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Then he says the same thing happened with Moses, verse 35 of Acts 7. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And Stephen wraps it all up, points his finger in their faces and says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. See the parallel? Stephen saw it. The Jews saw it when he pointed it out. And it made them so mad they stoned him to death. But there's a final parallel. That is the road to glory through evil suffered. The road to glory through evil suffered. Later, when Joseph first reveals himself to his brothers and they, they're in such shock they can't say a word. Joseph says this, Genesis 45, 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. This was your doing, your responsibility, but this was God's providence too at a higher level. God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 8 of that text. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Later, when years after this, in fact, When again, Joseph's brothers cannot get over what they did. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. 
So we go back to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, according to God's plan, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hebrews 2, verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So though carried out at the hands of wicked men, Jesus' betrayal and suffering were God's grace to this sinful world. The same world that conspired against his son. As Joseph's betrayal into Egyptian slavery was his path to glory, he never would have been Lord of the earth, all the earth coming to Egypt to bow before him, had he not been sold into Egypt. So Jesus' betrayal and death were the only way to bring many sons to glory. In order to be our Savior, Jesus had to suffer in our place. And this is where our sin and our Savior meet together. We are sinners, as we said, in a wicked world. The very worst manifestation of our wickedness was our treachery towards God's beloved Son. And yet that very event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is God's grace to us. Were it not for Jesus' death on the cross, we would be doomed, all of us doomed, to eternal death because that's what we deserve before God's justice for our wickedness. But if we turn from our own stubborn way and trust our souls to Jesus Christ, his death will be counted as our death before God. And his resurrection will give us eternal life. That's why we sang before the sermon, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray together. Father, please convict us of our sin. Including those of us who know you, we still have far too much sin in our life that we go back to, that we indulge again. Though you've given us new natures and your Holy Spirit, we grieve your Holy Spirit far too often by acting as if sin were still our slave master. Convict us of our sins and turn us to Christ in repentance. And certainly, Lord, for those who are here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ ever, who are not new creations in him, please change their hearts. Let them feel the weight of their guilt and the weight of their responsibility to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. 
help them to understand that this is not just something we say every week, but no one really needs to take it seriously outside of church. Help them to understand that this is ultimate reality. This is the greatest truth they could ever hear. Please bring them to the Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. That even in these dim shadows in the Old Testament, you are preparing us for, pointing us toward. Help us not to take pride and glory in ourselves as if we were worthy of anything before you, but only in our Savior. We thank you that there is complete and free forgiveness in him. Not only that, but an inheritance, an eternal inheritance in him that he purchased for us through his sufferings. Open our hearts to him today. We pray this for his sake. Amen.